It's October 20th, 2023, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, it's all about acne, DLE, SLE, and EGATS, a new regulatory approval. Let's begin with the wild and wacky world of acne. What has that got to do with rheumatology? Well, there's this thing called JACNE. We talked about that in the past. That's a Janus kinase inhibitor or JAK drug that may cause acne. And there's a nice sort of systematic review in JAMA this week, 25 studies, 10,000 patients. Uh, actually, it comes from JAMA dermatology. So it's sort of a, a dermatology look at this problem. Turns out you don't see this acne complication with JAK inhibitor use in our rheumatology clinics. I got to say, I use a lot of JAK inhibitors. Seldom have I ever heard any complaint of new acne. But in the dermatologic world, where they're using this for a lot of indications, not just psoriasis, but for atopic dermatitis and a lot of strange skin disease, of which we, you know, alopecia areata, alopecia universalis, vitiligo, people are using There's a lot of off-label use, I think, going on. Anyway, they're, number one, attuned to um, skin side effects, maybe more so than us. But again, 10,000 patients, um, it's a nice sample size. And pretty much all the studies that they looked at showed that, and they looked at all the jacket inhibitors out there, and it's probably five or six, if you include the topicals, they showed a three to five-fold increased risk when you compared the jacket inhibitor to a placebo, as far as, again, the occurrence of new onset acne. Um, and again, three to five-fold increased risk for upadacitinib, tofacitinib, baricitinib, and ducravacitinib. But it turns out that if you look for abracitinib, that's the Pfizer product, it was a 13-fold increased risk. Again, this is mainly a dermatologic patient phenomenon. Um, I'd be interested in if you see this in your patients. I certainly don't, but I thought it was an interesting enough thing to highlight here and let you look for it in your patients. I found a report that was commissioned by the National Osteoporosis Foundation, um, sort of a state of the discipline with osteoporosis and its effects on society. It was uh, published by in a Milliman report. Uh, and in this report, a few statistics I thought worth sharing with the audience. One, 12.3 million Americans have uh, osteoporosis. And I think that the, and that's of course in people over the age of 50, much larger number of osteopenia, osteopenia, that's 47 million. But the interesting thing was in spite of the magnitude of this problem, they sort of underscored that when a patient over 50 has a fracture, the number of people who go on to get, then get bone density assessments is abysmally low. This has been seen in both women and, and men. And so an analysis of Medicare patients who have a fracture, um, the next step of getting a bone density, which is, you know, first six months after a fracture is your the peak incidence for refracture, but only, what's the number? 8% of Medicare patients were having bone densities. This was less 5% if you look at African-Americans uh, in that Medicare population. So I'm not sure why this is not a knee-jerk reaction 
um, fracture in the elderly, get a bone density. Does it not make sense? This is something you should be teaching primary care doctors, emergency room doctors, and your elderly patients. So a number of years ago, um, tocilizumab was approved for use in giant cell arteritis. Uh, I've sort of watched what's happened here, and I don't know that I've been impressed by the number of people who are using tocilizumab IL-6 inhibition as steroid-sparing therapy in GCA, even though elderly patients, mega high doses of steroids, how often are we going there? And there has been uptake, but it's been a slow uptake of this particular approach to therapy. Mayo Clinic published its experience over a 10-year period, 2010, 2020, they had 114 giant cell arteritis patients who were treated with tocilizumab, and they reported on um, how long they stayed on therapy, whether they relapsed, whether they relapsed afterwards. Anyway, I think some interesting numbers. So um, the 114, now this is the Mayo Clinic. You know, they're like, I think that's one of the main nationwide centers for GCA, you know, long ago, led by Gene Hunter and Eric Madison and, you know, tons of people. Um, all the great data on GCA PMR was coming out of the Mayo and uh, Northern Minnesota. Um, so it's not surprising. They may be a little bit more attuned, maybe a little bit more aggressive. Um, this 114 that were on tocilizumab were started on tocilizumab a mean of four and a half months after um, the, the symptoms of GCA. Uh, when they did their analysis, these patients were on therapy for a meeting, I think of um, two to three years. Uh, and they looked at relapse rates or how often did they have flares of their GCA prior to receiving tocilizumab? It was basically 0.84 flares per patient years, basically almost one flare per, in a patient in a year's time. But while on tocilizumab, this was cut, in, cut down by two thirds to 0.28 flares per patient year. And then when they went off of tocilizumab, which was, um, I think the median number there was uh, almost 17 months after being on tocilizumab, patients went off and the post discontinuation rate went back up, not as high as the original 0.84, but it did double, more than double to 0.64 per flares or relapses per patient years. That's 52 patients they were following. Um, and of those people who did um, discontinue, half of them did relapse after a median of 8.4 months. So I think the takeaway on this is, one, the successful use of aggressive therapy with IL-6 inhibition starting at four and a half months after the diagnosis or onset of symptoms. Two, protection, pretty good protection uh, while on therapy. And three, that if you stop it within two years, you still run the risk of relapse, um, a 50% risk of relapse um, in the next, uh, in this case, eight months, could be up to 12 months. Uh, you know, I'm always sort of tuned into sleep stories. I think rheumatologists don't pay enough attention to sleep. I think you should be asking every patient you see, rate your sleep, good, fair, or poor, or very poor. Um, if it's not great, um, how long take you to fall asleep? How long take you? How many times do you wake up at night? Why do you wake up at night? Do you wake up feeling refreshed? You'd find that more than 50% of your patients have a sleep disorder. This particular study of 201 patients with 
spondoarthritis of some sort, PSA and axial spa showed that 43 of AXPA, 43% of AXPA and 47% of PSA patients had reported sleep problems on survey questionnaires. When they did the analyses, they showed that having poor sleep strongly correlated with disease activity for PSA and for ankylosing spondylitis. So again, um, having a sleep disorder was associated with uh, increased the odds or actually disease activity, increased the odds of sleep disorder eightfold. Um, being on biologics, you had a, a decrease in uh, sleep disorders um, and CRP levels were also correlated, activity and sleep disorders. So again, I think it underscores the fact you really do need to be paying attention. You wouldn't think that the spondoarthropathies have a sleep disorder problem, but in fact they do. So do so many, so do so many other of your patients, inflammatory arthritis or not. And basically, again, poor sleep leads to, you know, uh, other pains, other problems, fibromyalgia, et cetera. Uh, an article from a, um, I think this was from a, I want to say this was from um, JAMA Network Open about the use of anaphrolamab, the alpha interferon inhibitor, uh, in seven patients with resistant discoid lupus erythematosus. So these are well-established patients who had failed multiple therapies. When you looked at their activity, they had sleet I2K scores. There was a four and a six. That's sort of modest, but a bunch that had A12, 24, 22, really high disease activity by sleet I. Um, they went on um, um, IV anaphrolamab given monthly for six months all had significant reductions in their skin disease as measured by the Classy A tool with a 72% improvement at one month. 72% improvement in skin at one month. That's pretty impressive. And moreover, that they also had um, significant improvement in their sleet eye scores. All the patients who had sleet eyes, the four went to zero, the six went to two, the 22 went to four or eight or something like that. I mean, really good improvement in sleet eyes. There was only one case of um, herpes simplex reactivation and nothing else. Again, we're going to be seeing a lot of JAK inhibitor studies in a multitude of skin conditions. We've talked about dermatomyositis in the past. Um, we know that um, JAKs have been studied in systemic lupus. Right now, the only drug that's in play there is ducravacitinib. But might we see studies in DLE in the future? I think we should. Um so Canadians, I think, are happier than Americans. Is that possible? Well, number one, they've got hockey, right? We have hockey too, but they were kind of born with skates on. And I and, and they have football too, although they play on a strange field. It's hard to tell. Um, and I, I'm tuned into this because I have a family who comes from Canada. Um, but this is a particularly interesting study of 620 Canadians with chronic debilitating arthritis showing that, you know what, they don't have much in the way of secondary psychiatric disorders or mood disorders or anxiety. So that the majority, 70%, 75% or more, were free of any psychiatric disorder. That the same number rated themselves as being in good or complete um, mental health. Um, the factors that were associated with these good sort of um, mental health 
correlations, um, I think was increased in people who had a confidant, meaning a partner in life, that they had no background of insomnia or depression or anxiety. Um, I think that's encouraging data. Now, the flip side of that is it looks like 25% of patients with chronic debilitating arthritis do have um, mental health issues. And that is the major challenge that we have in rheumatology. How do we assess those people? How do we identify them? And what are you going to do about it when you see it? Are you going to manage it? Are you going to refer it? Are they in fact going to go? These are big issues. I don't know if you saw this report in Lancet this week about methotrexate being used in patients with hand osteoarthritis. Um, this is a study of 97 patients who had hand OA. Um, not much else is described there. Not, they don't have other inflammatory arthritis. Um, but they had to have a synovitis on uh, imaging. So again, no swollen joints, you know, crazy crooked joints like hand OA, but they had to have synovitis on imaging and they were given either methotrexate in 50 of them and placebo uh, in 47. So um, they only had a valuable data on 82, so 15. They didn't have complete data. So that's a problem number one. But they did show significant, and their primary outcome variable week was just visual analog pain. Now, again, what is the, the clinical trial best measure of hand away? And I don't think it's really firmly been established, and pain is a reasonable one. But nonetheless, it was just a visual analog scale, zero to um, 100 millimeters um, was the scale. The mean change at six months was minus 15 for methotrexate, and half that minus 7.7 for placebo with a significant difference at P.037. Adverse events were about the same, uh, almost two thirds of patients. And again, this proof of concept study suggests methotrexate could have a role in treating hand OA. Um, but however, you did have to have synovitis to make it um, a reasonable start. They suggested, you know, more study, obviously. This kind of analysis I think is dangerous meaning I don't agree with it. I don't know why it got into Lancet. It's certainly going to get buzz, and maybe that's why it got into Lancet. But first off, you need to know that DMARDs, biologics, you name it, it's been tried in OA, and they don't work. Secondly, in erosive inflammatory OA, biologics, DMARDs, they don't work. Dozens and dozens of trials, well done, some not well done, but they never work you know, TNF inhibitors and IL-6 inhibitors and steroids and you name it, they don't work. Um, so this proof of concept study suggests to you that it might work. In fact, there's very little evidence out there that suggests that giving methotrexate to garden variety methotrexate would work. I did a study almost 20 years ago with about 24 patients I enrolled with placebo controlled, whatnot, negative study. I was initially encouraged, but the when you did the analysis, really had no effect. We didn't report it. And there are reports in literature also showing negative um, effects or no benefit. There's one report that suggests maybe something in not, uh, not a well-controlled study. So the bottom line is this study had significant dropouts, right? Secondly, the analysis was an intent to treat analysis, which makes everything look good. And they're only looking at the 82 patients who completed the study, as opposed to the 97 who were enrolled. The 15 who dropped out should be counted as drug failures. Um, for whatever reason, they dropped out. That's what you should do in the most stringent analysis. 
You need to have MR synovitis. I don't do MR in my patients with hand OA. And again, the experience says uh, uh, that uh, I don't think that this data would sway me. So I put it up there for you to discuss and think about. I'm not endorsing and actually trying to dissuade you from considering using methotrexate in any form of osteoarthritis. There was an interesting report in Alzheimer's Rheumatic Disease on the updated ULAR recommendations for the management of systemic lupus erythematosus. These are the 2023 ULAR recommendations. This is a follow-up, I think, of the 2019. Um, and there were five overarching principles, you know, things that you would agree to. Uh, and then I think there was 13 specific recommendations. They basically say, number one, everybody should be on hydroxychloroquine if you have the diagnosis of lupus. Two, you use glucocorticoids when you have organ involvement um, and uh, and that you treat use only enough to control the organ involvement. If the organ involvement is serious, you need to use step on, uh, move on to other therapies. If you have life-threatening or organ-threatening disease with lupus, they recommend IV cytoxin or IV rituximab, IV cyclophosphamide or IV rituximab. As you can imagine, there's a plethora of drugs, topical and otherwise, to use for skin lupus. I think the big issue was what do they recommend regarding active lupus nephritis, new lupus nephritis. And they recommend several different regimens with equal weight. Number one, the low-dose urolupus intravenous cyclophosphamide regimen that seemed to have the strongest recommendation, or mycophenolate as another good recommendation with glucocorticoids. Um, they also recommended combination therapy with belimumab, um, either with cyclophosphamide or mycophenolate. Uh, again, that's pretty aggressive for lupus nephritis. And then lastly, calcineurin inhibitors, especially vocalspore and tacrolimus combined with mycophenolate. Those are the regimens they recommend for active new lupus nephritis. If those patients are renal responders, they should be treated with those regimens for at least three years. Patients starting on mycophenolate alone or in combination with belimumab or calcineurin should remain on those drugs. But patients um, uh, who were treated with cyclophosphamide um, alone or even in combination with belimumab should be reverted or converted over to maintenance therapy with azathioprine or mycophenolate. So again, I think that these are really important guidelines that you should review and take to light because you are going to be faced with lupus nephritis and you'd like to have the latest and greatest of therapy. I think the big news this week was FDA approval of the um, long-awaited FDA approval of vimikizumab. Um, this is the uh, dual IL-17 inhibitor, IL-17A, IL-17F, and it's being approved for uh, adults with active plaque psoriasis, moderate or severe disease that would require systemic therapy or phototherapy. Again, the data is based on three large uh, phase three trials, I think over 1,600 patients, where they showed uh, POSSE 90 scores of 85 to 91% and POSSE 100 scores of basically 60 to 70%. Uh, what's new here that's not um, uh, necessarily uh, on your mind when using other IL-17 inhibitors like ixekizumab or uh, secukinumab is that um, like those drugs, you should check for TB with a PPD or IGRA, but they want you to check baseline LFTs, alkaline phosphatase, or bilirubin. There is no black box warning here, um, but there 
uh, is warnings for suicidal ideation, which is uh, is in the label for berdalumab and for um, uh, um, Otesla and Apremolast, um, but is not in the label for ixekizumab or secukinumab. And again, a lot of these things carry over. This was sort of started back with berdalumab, but it's being developed by Amgen and it just carried forward. You know, once these things are cited or looked for in the in the design of the trials, they're likely to make their way into package insert. Turns out that the risk of um, suicidal ideation, I think, was incredibly low um, or non-existent in this study. But nonetheless, it's a warning. They want you to check for TB and inflammatory bowel disease as basically, you know, reasons that you wouldn't use uh, these drugs. The risk of serious infection was only 0.3%. Oral candidiasis was 9%. That is higher with than the IL-17 um, uh, inhibitors, Cosentex and, or, or I'm sorry, Secukinumab and Ixikizumab. I think the dual inhibition might get you more and also being given in psoriasis patient gets you more mucosal candidiasis infections. LFT elevations threefold times the upper limit of normal is only seen in 1% of patients, but yet you are supposed to check for that and look for that over time. The mean terminal half-life here is 23 days. There's no there's no data on pregnancy. There's really not a lot of data on its use in elderly. Um, it comes as an auto-injector and as a syringe, 160 milligrams. Use a double dose to start and basically then 160 um, after the, I think the first two injections. Um, and you can read my the Room Now article on that for what the dosing regimen should be. Anyway, that's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find these citations and more on the website. Be sure to take a look at this past Tuesday's Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Uh, it was on steroid sparing drugs, an interesting session hosted by Sebastian uh, Satui and panelists, including David Liu, Robert Spira, Sarah Mackey and Anisha do a great discussion, one hour podcast that you can listen to or video you can watch on the website. Next week, our last Tuesday Night Rheumatology focused on PMR. We're going to talk about controversies in PMR. And that session is going to be led by um, uh, David Liu. And I believe the panelists are going to include uh, Drs. Wolfgang Schmidt, Len Calabrese, uh, Sarah Mackey, and maybe more. Tune in this Tuesday night. Sign up for that. I think you'll enjoy it. That's it for this week on the podcast. Again, we'll see you next time. Take care.